Hello and welcome to this special edition of the Organic Gardening Podcast. I'm Fiona Taylor and here at Garden Organic, we decided to kick off the new year by talking to a very good friend of our charity. Adam Alexander is an author and grower who's written all about his passion for finding the very best vegetable seed in his book, The Seed Detective. Adam's seed search has taken him around the world and his stories are so fascinating that we felt he deserved his own special edition. Regular episodes of the Organic Gardening podcast will resume in February, but for now, I'm off to talk to the seed detective. I'm delighted to start this new year with a conversation with Adam Alexander, a great friend to Garden Organic and indeed to the Heritage Seed Library, who has written a fascinating book called The Seed Detective, which we're going to explore with him during this interview. But first of all, Adam, you are a great friend to our charity. Can you just tell me a little bit about that? Well, first of all, thank you very much for asking me to be on your podcast. It's a great honour. And I'm delighted to be able to share some of my stories and understandings with you. It all began in terms of my relationship with the Heritage Seed Library, particularly. And I mean, with Garden Organic, it goes back a long, long way, at least probably 40 years. And I probably like most people who have joined the Heritage Seed Library was interested in those packets of free packets of seeds that I could pitched into every year. So I just, in a fairly random sort of way, would get my annual fix of these heritage and heirloom varieties that were held by the library. And But it very soon became obvious to me that I, I could do more and be much more sort of proactive um, for the library. And I write about in the introduction to my book, I write about what got me started with seed saving rather than just being given seeds and trying to grow a few myself was that that introduction that I, that encounter rather that I had with a pepper in of all places Donetsk back in the late eighties set me on a path, which was to first of all, a path for, of deliciousness. I'm not interested in growing things that don't taste good. No, um, okay, fair enough. Good point. And I also, I also think it's kind of what our uh, sort of Neolithic ancestors who first started to, to domesticate plants, they were driven by the same thing. You know, you wanted to grow things, first of all, that they needed to feed you. But if they didn't taste good, why would you grow them? And that quest for deliciousness evolved quite quickly into a quest to really understand what the social and cultural implications and values were of local varieties, particularly heritage and heirloom. And at that point, it seemed to me that I really should be using some of my knowledge and increasing expertise in seed saving to be able to um, apply that to the Heritage Seed Library, which is why I became a seed guardian many, many years ago. We have uh, around about 190 seed guardians and they are given uh, a different variety pretty much each year to grow on for us. And these are amateur gardeners generally who have a real passion and a real expertise and they have learnt the art of 
conserving seed in a way that means that when they grow it on in time for harvest, it doesn't cross-pollinate, it doesn't in any way sort of deviate from the original. And every time, of course, heritage seed and in fact any open pollinated seed is sown, it gets stronger. So we use our seed guardians as this great, important program of ensuring that seeds are viable and ensuring that our collection is a living collection. If you do get hold of some seed from the Heritage Seed Library, as a member of the Heritage Seed Library, it will be fresh seed that has been reared probably by someone like you, Adam. Um, yes, I've become a bit of a seed anorak over the years. And I, <laughs> I, I, there's nothing I wrong with that. I'm a fledgling anorak. I can see the obsession and I can <laughs> see the value of belonging to the Heritage Seed Library. You know, if you joined 40 years ago, I mean, we're 50 in 2025. So you've yeah. been with us from pretty close to the start. Well, um, uh, yeah, <laughs> fairly early on. I think the other thing about why it's also, I, I always encourage people to save their own seeds. There are lots of very, very good reasons to do it. Well, apart from the sort of ecological um, uh, reasons and this idea of maintaining um, genetic diversity and uh, um and these varieties which can so easily be lost, and these are things that I've come across in my travels over the years, uh, sort of trying to find um, delicious and lovely local varieties. But there are many other reasons to do it, which I think are really, really important. So mm. when we save seeds, and particularly when we do it year after year after year, as you said earlier, one breeds in resilience and local adaptation. And so I find that, that because I've been doing it for so many years, that I have a number of varieties, including many from the Heritage Seed Library, that are ex very well uh, adapted to growing in my little corner of Southeast Wales. And so they tend to be earlier, more prolific and when one is also selecting seed from the the fruits of one's labor, which actually have traits that one is really keen in conserving and maintaining, we are really doing an important job of conserving this genetic diversity, which we need if we're going to have a, a resilient future of food production. But there are other very important reasons. And to me, one of them is memory. When we buy a packet of seeds, it's just a packet of seeds. And yes, it may have a name on the label of a variety that we might know, but it's not ours. Mm. And as soon as you sow it and you grow it and you enjoy it, and then you save the seeds and you grow them the next year, the next year when you go into your garden, you are reminded, you remember where it's come from, why it matters to you, what its special qualities are. And that becomes memory. And for me, I'm lucky. I mean, I, I have maybe 500 varieties of vegetables in my collection, many, many of them from the Heritage Seed Library. And I'm not growing them all every year, maybe 150 varieties a year. So when I walk through my garden, I'm traveling around the world. And I've been lucky enough to walk around your garden with you. And 
just for people listening, it, it sounds enormous, but it's not actually that big. I mean, this is the thing that's so extraordinary about seed saving is that you don't need that many plants each time. You can do things with quite a small number of plants. So you can then have a huge number of varieties potentially within quite a small space. So can you describe to us your growing area? It's actually very small. I can just give you the numbers. So I have two polytunnels that are 30 foot long by 15 foot wide, and I have a 12 foot by eight foot greenhouse. Um, And then I have 18 raised beds that are four meters long by a meter wide. So everything fits into actually quite a small space. And I'm also growing a lot of things in pots. I love to experiment. So when I get given seeds as a member of the Heritage Seed Library, you know, you'll get your packet of seeds and I may get, you know, 10 or 12 beans or 20 peas in a packet. Actually, that's enough to grow in a large pot. Yes. Um, So I like to do that because I like to see how things do in small confined spaces. Um, And it's amazing because you can just take literally a handful of of seeds, put them in a a large pot. And not only have you got lots of lovely meals, but at the end of the season, as the plants are maturing and starting to dry off, you don't need to save that many pea pods or bean pods um, to have more than enough to grow and share the following year. It's fascinating this, isn't it? Because we've had this sort of tradition around gardening that if something goes to seed, it's, it's bad. You know, it's a bad thing. Oh, we've let it run to seed. And actually, as you say, well, if you've got, you know, six plants, you're only going to need to let one go and you're going to get all that enjoyment off the others. But I, I love the idea of you sowing your heritage seed library seeds in a series of pots so that you can observe them closely yep. and, and yep. understand them and see, you know, what the timing is and, and how that evolves. And and I think that's, again, one of the joys of, of having a plant that you watch right through the entire cycle because we're so conditioned to, well, you know, once it's fruited, yank it out. Well, it's rubbish, isn't it? it it's rubbish. <laughs> well, I always like to do the maths as well. So, you know, if I'm saving peas are a really good example. So um, I think to myself, well, I want to grow a two meter double row of peas and I'm growing my peas about two centimeters apart in a double row. So that means I need absolute tops, 300 peas. That actually is probably 15 pods. That's all it is. So literally a handful is enough for you to grow enough peas to feed yourself for several weeks, usually. That's the other really wonderful thing about these old traditional varieties is that when you were a farmer back in the day, actually the last thing you wanted was all of your crop to come at once. You wanted it to provide you with food over a long period, which is why so many of these traditional varieties are great for us because if you keep picking them, they keep delivering the goods. And that is absolutely the antithesis of modern cultivars where you want to harvest them all in one go. But it's lovely that you can have a few plants, try them. And if you like them, you just save a handful of seeds and off you go the next year. And the following year, those seeds that you have saved, when they come up, they go, "Mm, I know this place. This is home. And um, everyone's a winner. Most definitely. And this passion of yours, finally has been written into a brilliant book called The Seed Detective, which you wrote last year. It's been very well received and it's had lots of good write-ups. 
uh, with very good reason. Because what you've done in the book is you've taken people around the world with you because this passion of yours has been with you for decades. And you've always found time, even when you were traveling to another country for other work that you were doing, you've managed to sneak off and go and explore the local vegetables, the local markets, and understand the local food economies. So it really takes us all across the globe, this book. It's absolutely fascinating. And I'd quite like us to delve into some of these stories, because each of these incredible seeds and incredible varieties have a great story, and, and, and you tell them really well. And the first one I'd really like to explore is when you went to Oman. There's a little section in the book that's called A Land Full of Surprises. And I just want to read a little extract from that just to see if we can take people with us into this extraordinary landscape that you describe. At about 2,000 metres above sea level, this stunning region is famous for growing damask roses to make rose water, possibly Oman's least known but loveliest export after its sensational dates. When I travelled there in 2012, the road had only recently been partially tarmacked. A four-wheel drive was essential, and a smile at the checkpoint off the main highway was sufficient to allow free passage. Tiny, ancient villages cling to precipitous cliffs as terraces tumble a thousand metres to the valley floors. As well as roses, all just starting into bloom when I was there in early spring, farmers grow pomegranates, peaches, grapes and a profusion of vegetables, including local varieties of tomato, cucumber and garlic. Now, Oman and garlic are not words I would have put into the same sentence had I not read your book. Tell us more. Yes, it's interesting. I mean, the site plateau where I was is fantastic because you think Oman, we're at the bottom end of the Gulf, it's desert, it's dry, it's hot. And yes, it's all of those things. But at 2,000 metres above sea level, it also has a, a remarkable climate. And it has this long, long history of human occupation. The thing that most surprised me when I went there was just the sophistication of the irrigation. It makes the Alhambra look rather like a sort of slightly boring fountain in comparison. I, I don't mean to disrespect Alhambra, <laughs> but my, my goodness me, when you go to the site plateau, you see it. And right, actually right across northern Oman, the genius of those inhabitants who thousands of years ago were making use of what little water there was. I'd actually gone up there um, for a bit of r and &R. I'd been doing some work in the region and um, wasn't really expecting to find anything other than damask roses. And unfortunately, mm -hmm. I was a bit early, so they weren't fully in flower. But when I stumbled across these terraces, full of garlic. And they were at that lovely stage where when we grow garlic, we can eat it when it's fresh in sort of late spring. And there was this garlic red skinned, just looking very inviting. And I was somewhat surprised, went back to the hotel I was staying at and spoke to the patron. I said, where did this come from? I said, who's growing this stuff? And he said, well, it's me. It's my farm. This is all oh. my terraces around here. And I mean, this is something that I've come across constantly is that you you see something and if it could be a farmer it can be a hotelier chefs are growing 
all the things that are around them. And in the case of this garlic, he kind of thought, well, they're, they come from France. And I think he hadn't really thought of it because he, like many of us, just associated garlic eating with the French. Well, the French had certainly been occupied Oman earlier on in the, in the 20th century. They'd had a time there. But actually, that garlic was not French. And I knew that because for those of us who grow and enjoy garlic, you know, there are two key types. There's the, the soft neck and the hard neck. And they have two areas of domestication that are apart. So the soft neck comes really from Central Asia and the northern part of Indochina. And the hard necks come from the southern part. And I thought to myself, how did they get up here? And mm -hmm. it made me think about one of the things that's so important about these local varieties is they tell us so much about civilization. It's our story. And it becomes part of that food culture. And I see this again and again. If you think thousands of years ago, people were on the move. And the, 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 the Middle East uh, is really an important part of the world for food because it's part of this, the Fertile Crescent, which is sort of Eastern Mediterranean and the Near East is what makes up the Fertile Crescent. And you had people that were traveling from the South trading. Mm. And they would start in the South and they'd follow up by the sea until they got to um, Amman. And actually where they were headed, most of them, was to Constantinople, which was the great trading center two and a half thousand years ago. If you think of cities in Syria, which is itself an amazing country for plant hunting and seeds, is that Damascus is the oldest continuously inhabited city in the world. It's been there for three and a half thousand years. And people stopped off in Amman to get on a camel, to head north, Damascus first stop, then Aleppo with this ancient souk, ultimately Constantinople. And I'm, you know, call me a bit of an old romantic, but I, I kind of imagine that you had these travelers who were, were trading and carrying stuff with them. Um, as we travel, we have to eat. What do we carry with us? We carry with us the seeds of our own nations and cultures. And that, of course, also included bulbs of garlic. And I can imagine some traveler, um, you know, for whatever reason, falling in love with a local. Um, they, they end up staying in Amman on the side plateau, which was highly cultivated, you know, a couple of thousand years ago or more, and plant their garlic. And over time, that garlic is assimilated into the local food culture. And that's why I like to grow it myself, um, because it has a particular sort of habit. It likes to be dry. Uh, it wants a nice cold winter, which is what you get on the site plateau. Um, and of course, it's unimpeachably delicious. Yes, absolutely. Well, we're going to travel a bit further now because we, in the Heritage Seed Library, we hold lots and lots of beans, amongst other things. But beans are of immense importance as a crop because they can be eaten in so many ways and they can be dried. And it's funny because in a kind of veg patch context, we're a bit kind of dismissive of beans because they're, they're quite an easy crop on the whole. So we perhaps don't quite have that much respect for the humble bean. But my goodness, there's a serious amount of culture attached to it. So I'm going to read again from your book because now we're travelling to Myanmar. 
amazed at how well travelled you are, Adam, but you, you do describe it so beautifully. It was February 2015 and I was travelling in Shan State, northern Myanmar. Mist lay across the silently flowing Matingi River like a comfy duvet. The lightening sky drove out the shadows that had been hiding the secrets within the morning market. Stooping beneath the gently billowing red and orange fabric canopies of the stalls, I was soon lost in a maze of narrow paths, muted colours, spicy aromas and piles of local produce. Everywhere were mounds of watermelon, pineapple and the usual spread of chilies, onions, greens, herbs and salad crops. I wasn't looking for anything in particular, just curious, with the hope of being surprised. And indeed you were surprised, so tell us what happened next. My first stop whenever I'm travelling anywhere is a market, and the last thing you do is you go to a, a popular tourist market. You get up at dawn and you go to where all the locals get their food. Yeah. And I'm always on the lookout for a particular archetype who is somebody, they're nearly always women of a certain age, and they are growing their own vegetables and fruits and selling them in the market. And they're usually doing it or nearly always doing it from seeds that they've saved themselves. That's really key to what I'm after. So when I was wandering around this wonderful market in Sipor, which is on the road to Mandalay from China, the Shan State's really interesting. I mean, now the Shan state is at war with the hunter in Myanmar, and they're very independent people. And you have to imagine, this is quite elevated ground. As you go north in Myanmar, you get higher, you're getting in towards the Himalayas. And so the climate change is really, really interesting. And I was in the market and I saw a number of ladies with these huge baskets, like the size of Tires. Yes, piled high. Yes, yes, yes. They were piled high with beans, and people were buying these beans. They were cooked, and people were buying handfuls of them. And then they were popping the beans out of the pods, a bit like we would do with an edamame bean, and eating them as snacks. And I had a wonderful guide called Ang So, who was uh, a Shan. And I asked him about these beans because I was intrigued. I said, what are they? And he said, well, we call them the angry bean. <laughs> and I said, why? And he said, because in Shan culture, if a pregnant woman tries to harvest these beans, they will stop cropping. And I was fascinated by this because apart from the sort of trope of the unclean woman, this goes back to animist beliefs, obviously sort of religious ideas, wrongly or rightly. What it told me was that this bean was absolutely the heart of Shan food culture. And yet when I looked at it, I thought, this bean does not come from Myanmar. It comes from South America, which is the home of not all beans, but of New World beans. And I had a suspicion that this was a, a type of bean known as Fasolus lunatus. But I didn't know. And also, I was keen to see if I could get hold of some seeds. And it was that time of year, everybody's harvesting their beans. There's no seeds around. Fortunately, Ang So's mum had some seeds. I said, oh, I can't take your seeds off. She said, it's all right. She said, we're putting an extension into the garden. I'm not planning to grow them anymore. So I felt entirely justified in taking her stock. And I brought a few seeds back home with me. And 
first of all, they're absolutely beautiful. They're one of the most beautiful beans you could ever look at. They're very large, flat bean with this wonderful red and white swirly patterns on them. Mm. And I'd asked his mum where they came from. And she said, well, they come from Mandalay. They're our bean. They're a Shan bean. And I, when I tried to explain to her, look, I think they come from South America. She said, no, of course they don't. You know, looking at me as <laughs> yeah. if I was a Well, they were, they were their person. bean. By that stage, yeah, they abso- were theirs. Absolutely. Absolutely. But anyway, I then wasn't sure about their provenance. And I did some tweeting. And eventually, I hooked up with a guy in Texas who said, actually, this is known in America as the Christmas lima bean, or as Americans call it, the Christmas lima bean. And we had made some notes and comparisons, and I knew that I had a land race type of bean called Fasolus lunatus subspecies palar. There's another one, which is the Siva bean, which is a white butter bean, which we're much more familiar with. And the palar bean comes from actually quite a small region of northwest Peru, hence the name Lima. And why is it called the Christmas lima bean. That is because when Americans were traveling west, Europeans were traveling at the gold rush, they arrive in California, and there's been a lot of trade going up and down the west coast of America with ships, and sailors have to eat. So they would be stocking up as they sailed from south to north with beans from Peru. Presumably dried beans. And, oh, you know, yeah, absolutely. Yes, yeah, and, yeah. And they then ended up being picked up by the, the new European wannabes hoping to get rich prospecting for gold. And it was called the Christmas lima bean because they would grow it as a winter crop. And it was a protein store. And really, really important in order to stave off potential starvation, hence the name, because it was being eaten at Christmas time. And the other thing is that if you look at pre-Inca pottery from Mm. that part of Peru, it is covered in decorations of this particular bean. And the reason why I love what I call the angry bean is because it absolutely is the story of globalization. It is yes. a fantastic example of how you have one crop and it means so many different things to so many different people. And it's been part of our human food culture for at least three and a half thousand years. And how did it get from South America to Myanmar, you ask yourself? And that was to do, again, with globalization and colonization, that the, the, the Spanish, when they conquered Mexico, started a trade called the Manila trade that ran from Acapulco into the Philippines. And they had to feed their crew and they put beans on. And that's how many beans arrived in Southern Asia from this route and found their way by fair means and foul into Shan state, wasn't Myanmar then, and was embraced by those people Mm. and became hugely significant. And it's, to me, I mean, it's the one crop that I grow that I think has the richest diversities of stories about itself around the world. The vital importance of beans. Very, very important. We should be eating pulses every day. I try to. 
That is absolutely fascinating to think of how well-travelled a crop like that becomes. I mean, you were saying it's a really vital part of the Shand cuisine, and that presumably spreads right across Indochina, I would have thought. It does in different ways. So in different parts of Indochina, you have different crops that mean different things to them. It's difficult now because I can't go back to I can't go back to Shan State. You can't get into Myanmar. I've been back to Sipur a number of times. And when I first went, there were several women selling this bean. And the last time I went, there was only one person selling them. And this is the real problem that we have. Because of the pressures, the Chinese were coming into Shan State and saying to the farmers, look, you don't grow this crop that you've grown forever in a day. Grow these modern cultivars for our market. And what happens is that literally within a heartbeat, you lose a variety. And the amazing thing about the whole of that region is that it is essentially agrarian. Millions of small farmers, all growing local varieties, saving their own seeds. So you have this incredible genetic diversity. And it's very resilient. It means they don't go hungry. But as soon as you are tempted and somebody comes along and says, grow this, you're going to make more money. Why wouldn't you grow it? But actually in doing that and then abandoning those traditional varieties, you have reduced the gene pool. You've actually hooked yourself into a business model where you're no longer in control. And this is very, very troubling. And I've seen it not only with Christmas lima bean, but with many other crops. And I write about in the book that, you know, sometimes there, but for the grace of whoever, um, they wouldn't be there anymore. But we can talk about that as a prime example of that that sits in the Heritage Seed Library right now. We will come to that in just a moment. But I think it does just demonstrate the vital importance of seed conservation, because Absolutely. you can't just assume it's going to happen. In a 100 years, we will lose these varieties because people will find other ways to make a living. And then the unintended consequence of that can be exactly what you've just described. So we've travelled with the angry bean up to Peru, and we've talked about it being called the Christmas lima bean. It's a short hop up to North America now. I really want to talk about corn with you. Such an important crop in America. Let me just read a little extract just to set the scene and, and just to imagine the landscape around you on this particular trip of yours. Highway 264 runs east to west through northern Arizona, the southern heart of the Navajo Nation. A landscape of vast rolling plains, which with every rise, reveals another desiccated landscape of canyons, ridges and buttes. Ribbons of trees growing alongside empty washes of dried up beds await the nourishing fury of the next flash flood, which will arrive during the brief rainy season of high summer. The roads were empty, straight as a die through the basins and then sweetly curvaceous as we climbed the ridges. At each summit, we were presented with stunning views of a land that seemed to go on forever. So where are you, Adam? Oh. Well, I was en route into the Hopi Nation, and the Hopi Nation actually lives within the heart of the Navajo Nation in Arizona. And I was particularly interested in the Hopi, who are remarkable people, because first of all, there aren't very many of them left. They have been the victims of wars acro across um, the whole of North America, because indigenous people were constantly fighting each other, then followed by the invasion of Europeans. The Spanish 
started it all and then followed by other Europeans who effectively performed a form of genocide on many Native Americans and particularly the Hopi. So the Hopi are, are not particularly well disposed to incomers and strangers, but I was really keen to meet them because maize is one of the most remarkable crops. It's also the domestication of maize is a remarkable story that happened in southwest Mexico about four and a half thousand years ago. And to me, it's a story of the, the genius of our Neolithic farmer ancestors who, driven by curiosity and all the other external forces acting on them to try and improve the food supply, were able to select from a series of really interesting mutations that happened to another entirely different crop called Tiocente to end up with this unbelievable diversity of varieties of maize. There are literally thousands of them. It's and interesting, isn't it? Because, of course, we instantly think of the bright yellow kind yeah. of butter corn cobs, which are utterly delicious, but we tend to only eat them one way. And yet this extraordinary crop can do so much for us. What did you find? What did you discover? I was particularly keen in trying to discover more about, to me, one of the most remarkable mazes of all, which is blue Hopi maize. And the, the reason for that is that the Hopi, they're farmers, and it's a matriarchal society. The women own everything. They make all the decisions, and they are growing in a hyper-arid environment, which is unbelievably challenging. You know, when you have two or three inches of rain a year, you've got real problems trying to feed yourself. And the amazing thing about the Hopi is how maize is so important in their sense of identity and culture. And because they're a very private people, it's actually really hard to get to talk to Hopi farmers. I was actually in another town called Wilmslow in Arizona, talking to a chef there who was working with native foods with the Navajo about trying to meet up with some Hopi farmers. And he said, good luck, Adam. Uh, you're not going to get anywhere. But he said, there is a place in the second mesa. There are three mesas where the Hopi live. And he said, that in the second mesa, he said, there's a, what I'd call a sort of souvenir knickknack shop where I understand you know, they sell a few bits and pieces and you, 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 you never know what you might find. And I was not holding out much hope. Anyway, I drove up onto the second Mesa and, you know, it's, it's straight out of a Hollywood scene. There was this dusty street, some rather indifferent looking small shacks. And there was one with a sign swinging outside and an ancient pickup outside. And the screen door was clanging in the wind. Yes. And I walked into this place and there were two guys leaning on the counter. And one was this giant Hopi. And next to him was a little white guy from Illinois. And the two of them were reading an article in Scientific American about the domestication of maize. And it was just one of those extraordinary, you know, you make your own luck in this world. It was real serendipity. This was an article that I was using for research when I was starting to think about writing the book and understanding more about the domestication of maize. 
It was just extraordinary. I said, I don't believe it. I know this article. And so suddenly we're talking about maize. And I said, look, I'm really interested in blue maize and I'd really love to try and grow some and I could grow it in a polytunnel by not irrigating it and just to see what would happen. And there was this sort of noises off um, <laughs> in, in the kitchen of somebody baking. There was much clanking going on. And Joe, who was the, 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 the guy from Illinois, was married to a host. Janice. And he shouted, Janice, there's this guy from England. He's after some of your maze. And I thought, oh no, this is not how these things happen. And I was expecting to be given short shrift. And this wonderful Hopi lady comes in and she's all sort of covered in flour and looking slightly grumpy. And he said, do you want to give him some maize? And I thought, well, I'm going to have to go on a serious charm offensive here. And we started to chat and she was lovely. And she was telling me about how they'd met and she'd come back into the Hopi nation and had been given back her land by the lady of their tribe. And she was growing maize and they grow it very differently there where they grow it in, they, they dig a deep hole, at least a foot deep, and they chuck a handful of seeds in and they wait. And there's just enough moisture for the seeds to germinate. And then they send out these long shoots and you get these clumps of maize growing maybe 15, 20 feet apart. And they have long leaves that hang down so that they shade the ground and they're quite short. And you get these wonderful deep blue cobs. And she said, sure, I'll give you some maize. She disappeared mm. out of the kitchen. She came back with a, a small bag full of maize. And she said, oh, by the way, here are some teepery beans. These are my teepery beans. They're white. And teepery beans, which there are some in the Heritage Seed Library, are really important because they grow without irrigation. And it was fantastic. I mean, I was gobsmacked. I was wiping the tears from my eyes mm. and the lump from my throat. It was a wonderful thing that, that she did. But one of the reasons why the Hopi are very reluctant to share their seeds is because it's the blue maize is so important. If you are a young Hopi boy and you have fallen in love, with the girl in the farm next door. He's got to like your maid. She's not going to marry you unless you bring into her family blue maize that is as good or better than what she and her family are growing. And so within the Hopi nation, you have these land races, which is what they all are, but they're all distinct. They're all different. And there are fewer of them these days. And this is a big problem because of the pressures of climate change and changing demographics. But there's still probably 20 to 40 different types of blue maize being grown in the Hopi Nation. And this is all thanks to this incredible kind of relationship that they have with it. And that's why I love blue maize, because although I, I've grown it for fun and I can make blue polenta, and it's wonderful because you just abuse it, you just put it in the ground and forget about it, is that it absolutely speaks to me of how this visceral relationship that people have with what they grow and eat, and why it's so important that we ourselves recover that relationship in our modern post-industrial country. If if you were to describe the flavour of blue maize, you know, what's the difference between that and, and the kind of standard corn that, that we're also used to? Well, of course, there are lots and lots of different types of corn. So you've got sweet corn and dent corn and popcorn. And blue maize is a, a, a milling maize. It's eaten dried. And it makes a very nice polenta. Hand on heart, put a gun to my head and said, does this taste any better or any worse than any other 
form of polenta that you've eaten, I couldn't tell the difference. But that's not what matters. What's important is it matters to them. So although I've grown it as an experiment and for fun and it's a talking point, it's very nice to eat, but it doesn't mean as much to me as it does to them. And I respect that hugely. What I will say, though, is the most delicious sweet corn that I've ever eaten and which I do grow is a Navajo sweet corn. And that is fabulous. That's a whole nother story about getting seed for that. I won't grow anything else now as a sweet corn. That's it. Navajo sweet corn is to die for. And you've discovered that and you have then, you know, managed to bring a pocket full of seed back and, and do the same at home and then enjoy it yourself, which again, creates your own story. And you have many favourites, I know, and you have many great stories, but I happen to know that you are pretty passionate about peas, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> and I might just, um, if you'll forgive me for one more extract from your book. In 2014, I was on holiday in the region of Catalonia, known as Garoxta. It's a part of the Southern Pyrenees, which, like most regions of Spain, is fiercely proud of its food culture. Thanks to a conversation with my host about my quest to find local varieties of vegetables, he introduced me to a kindred spirit, Jesus Vargas. His small organic farm nestles in an idyllic fold of this region where he grows about 150 varieties of vegetables, almost all of which are native to Catalonia and northern Spain. Roaming freely, through his vegetable garden, I came across a jungle of peas. You must have been in heaven. I was in heaven. And, and anyone who grows peas knows that there is a sort of moment when you're looking at the crop and those pods are beginning to swell and you think, I've got to try some of them. And it, that was the case when I met Jesus. And I mean, it was crazy, the, these peas growing in this huge jungle. And it was that time of year. And there, in the jungle with so many pods and they were long and just fattening up. And I said, oh, Jesus, do you mind if I try? He said, help yourself. And I tell you what, that was a wow moment. And these peas are just fabulous. I then asked, like everybody I meet when I'm learning about what it is they grow, I said, well, tell me this, what's the story? And he said, well, this pea was bred by my wife's grandfather and named after her grandmother. Avi one. And that's a very familiar story because I am a bit of a peanut. And, <laughs> and pea breeding was an obsession in the 19th century, both amongst amateur growers and, uh, and commercial breeders. Jesus's wife's grandfather was this kind of generation of farmers and breeders who were really into growing and developing their own varieties. And he came up with this pea. And I said to Jesus, oh gosh, this is just wonderful. Would you, would you like to take some home with you to grow? You know, are you kidding? And he gave me some peas and I said, these are just really, really interesting and important. Who else is growing them? And he said, well, nobody's growing them, just me. And I said, Jesus, my friend, what happens when you shuffle off this mortal coil? And he said, well, I don't know. He said, you know, the kids aren't that interested in taking it on. And I, you know, maybe somebody will have them. But, and I thought, no, that can't be allowed to happen. Anyway, I brought the, these peas back home and I grew them. I mean, first of all, I need a ladder to be able to harvest them, uh, the ones at the top, because they'll grow to three meters. And 
they are really interesting. The bees absolutely love them. So they are just covered in bees when they're in full flower, which is lovely. But most importantly, you get these big pods with these big, super sweet peas. And I wanted to be sure that they were safe. And I knew that I could grow them and I could share seeds. And I, I did talk to Katrina Fenton at the Heritage Seed Library. I said, look, do you think you'd put these into, put these into the system and tell me what you think? Are they distinct? Are they really different? And uh, they did that at the Heritage Seed Library. And the, two or three years ago, they said, you're right. This is pretty special. And they are now held by the library. And when they're in the catalog, members can get seeds. So now that's safe. It ain't going anywhere. But what's also really exciting is that because it's now being grown in lots of different places, it also will become, over time, there will be land races of it. And I mean, I've sent this pea all over the world. And you know that it's like all of these open pollinated, very genetically diverse heritage and heirloom varieties, that it's going to be able to fit like into the locations it finds itself. And I just hope that it will continue to be grown widely in its native homeland of Catalonia, which reminds me I need to tell Jesus to start sharing some more seeds. <laughs> And I mean, this is a, a phenomenal passion of yours that has taken you around the world, has encouraged you to meet all sorts of people and, you know, this incredible shared passion. But, you know, you are an amateur. You are yeah. somebody who has seen this and has been sort of seized by it. And you've then been moved to write about it and to explain it. And although you said at the beginning that you were initially motivated by deliciousness, would you say now that you are motivated by something different? It's still got to taste good. I mean, now I'm really interested in the future. The book is about where our vegetables came from, the story of domestication, and also their place in human story. But it takes us to where we're at now. I think what I'm really driven by now is how this incredible germplasm that is held within the Heritage Seed Library and all this great diversity of local varieties and also commercially bred varieties that maybe have gone out of fashion are the building blocks, the fundamentals for how we really ensure that we have a sustainable source of food as the climate changes. Because these varieties that we're growing, and particularly as seed savers, as we continue to save them and grow them and share them, what we're also doing is we're also becoming sort of evolutionary plant breeders, that these varieties do change and they're not frozen in time. That's very important. One wants to be able to keep the base genetic material intact so that we know what we're working with. But as they start to be grown by others and shared, things happen and they become more adapted. And that, I think, is, to me, the most important thing now. Sure, they've got to taste great, but it doesn't matter how good they taste. If they can't grow in a climate that is becoming more extreme, that doesn't solve our problem. Adam, thank you so much for walking us through all that and for so eloquently setting out why what we do at the Heritage Seed Library is of real significance, particularly in the face of adapting to climate change which is upon us the need for us 
to keep up with uh, changing conditions to ensure that the seed that we hold is resilient. But you do that too with the seed that you hold and you do that um, with a whole family and a whole global network of people who care about this and who understand the vital importance of it. And sometimes it feels a little bit like we're, we're the voices in the wilderness, doesn't it? But I think you have really brought this whole issue so much to life through your wonderful book, The Seed Detective. And I would Thank really encourage anybody <laughs> listening to read it because it is a wonderful book and it's full of stories and places. And actually, most important, perhaps of all, it's full of people. Um, because it's people who are at the heart of this effort. So it's just been a huge privilege to talk to you and to dive into this issue. Well, thank you, Fiona. And it's the pleasure, I assure you, is all mine. Been lovely. Thanks so much for listening. And thanks to Adam Alexander for joining us on this month's podcast. You can get his book, The Seed Detective, at all major book retailers. If you'd like to hear more about the Heritage Seed Library, and becoming a seed guardian for us, visit gardenorganic.org.uk forward slash HSL. That's it for now. My thanks to Kevin McLeod for the music. Until next time. <laughs> <laughs>